I repeat myself, It's Wednesday, November 17th, and this episode of Real Talk, just like the 200 plus other episodes of Real Talk since inception, is presented by our friends at Bitcoin Well. You can find them under the sponsors tab on our website. If you have questions about Bitcoin, the past, present, and future, if you have questions about why it's a thing or how it's a thing or how you get your hands on some or what if you want to sell it or what's a Bitcoin wallet or what's this blockchain, I recommend personally the team at Bitcoin Well. Again, under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Great show in store. We're talking about uh, in just a second with a couple of big deals. Chef Ned Bell and author Julie Van Rosendahl. Uh, she says on her Twitter, cook, author, writer, eater. And so that's how we'll introduce her. Everybody knows Julie Van Rosendahl, dinnerwithjulie.com. We're going to talk to both of them about what's going on in BC right now. It's absolutely gut-wrenching. There's, there's been one death confirmed uh, due to a mudslide, but I know that people, and I hate to put it this way, but people are expecting uh, others uh, to be reported deceased as a result of this. There's flooding, there's slides, there's just absolute chaos in some parts of that province. Uh, where we, you know weather conditions due to flooding and uh, and reported slides etc have absolutely captivated I I think a, a nation that sort of has its heart in its throats a little bit. Um, the BC RCMP said in a statement just yesterday after we went off the air as a matter of fact a woman's body recovered from the scene of a slide on Highway 99 just outside of Pemberton. And uh, a resident of BC's Lower Mainland, the entire country is looking at this, I think, and it's it's fair to say because of the striking visuals, you see highways washed away. It's reminiscent of of southern Alberta about eight years ago. You remember those floods that absolutely wiped out High River and in a huge swath of Calgary, other parts of central Alberta. You remember Canmore took a beating as well. Similar type visuals. There's also real problems when it comes to railways, when it comes to the port of Vancouver, and when it comes to essentially supply chain. And this is going to have a huge impact on food. It's going to have a, have a huge impact across the country in a number of different ways. And, and Ned and Julie are going to take us into that. I'm looking forward to that conversation. How interesting as well. Anybody paying attention to Senator Denise Batters? She's booted out of so-called the, the conservative family by Aaron O'Toole, the leader, after questioning his leadership. This is kind of an interesting one. There, 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 there's goings on with regards to conservative unity at both a national and then a provincial level from our home province, from the perspective here in Alberta, it's obvious what's going on here. And of course, this weekend coming up, the AGM for the United Conservative Party, a lot of people are paying attention to that. But but pretty interesting to see Aaron O'Toole boot Former conservative Senator Denise Batters, uh, one day after she challenged his leadership, said Aaron O'Toole yesterday, quote, as the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, I will not tolerate an individual discrediting and showing a clear lack of respect toward the efforts of the entire conservative caucus who are holding the corrupt and disastrous Trudeau government to account. This was a statement released late yesterday from Aaron O'Toole, the leader of Canada's conservatives. He goes on to say just eight weeks ago, Canadians elected conservatives to hold Justin Trudeau accountable. I'm sorry. And just I'll tell you why I'm laughing in just a second. 
to, to hold Justin Trudeau accountable for his economic mismanagement and fight the cost of living crisis, skyrocketing inflation and supply chain issues that are crippling business. That is our focus as a team. Batters was uh, appointed to the Senate in 2013 by former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and she's been kind of a big deal in conservative circles. Uh, she, she's one of the more right-leaning, one of sort of the more right-wing prominent conservatives across the country first of all i i what's the giggles about what's going on giggles <laughs> you know exactly what the giggles are about what an interesting way to frame <laughs> losing an election just eight weeks ago canadians elected conservatives to hold justin trudeau accountable if my team loses the hockey game we did not win the right to What's how do you how do you frame this in a sports Canadians elected conservatives to hold Justin Trudeau accountable? What? No, you lost. Some of you got a elect- Anyway, that's not the point. It, it's 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 not the point. And I don't want to make this. It, it's, it, you know, <laughs> so Denise Batters is like taking a run at the leader of the conservative party, Aaron O'Toole, and like, get ready, buddy, because you saw it happen with Andrew Scheer. And they're they're coming for you, right? You lost the election, and and Aaron O'Toole did his best to appear prime ministerial, and I get what he's doing. Aaron O'Toole is trying to reach out, I think, to people like me, like me personally, that are going. I've, I have voted conservative in the past. I would. I I feel like I'm somewhat wired to consider voting conservative. And people right now, I'm not. I'm not even opening the chat line. I'm not even going to look at my Twitter mentions right now because people are going to be like, "All right, nobody is some sort of bad time." Like, nah, it's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking big picture, ideologically. If you imagine that shysters are not in charge, if you imagine that the party is appealing and attractive to the average normal person that has reasonable expectations of government but is also driven by things like common sense and science and empathy i'm the type of person that would be inclined to consider voting conservative but as long as people like derek sloan and denise batters are associated with the conservative brand for me it's a non-starter and I think that there's a lot of people like me across the country. I had a guy approach me. I was out last night, uh, a brand new restaurant opening. It's, as a matter of fact, attached to some partners of ours. And I'm really excited for them. The, ti- the team behind Prairie Catering is opening a restaurant called May. And it's stunningly beautiful. And a, and a relatively prominent person comes up to me yesterday and says, I want to love your show. And but. I said, but... <laughs> He just goes, you're just so hard left. And I said, I said, in what way? And his wife's like pulling on his arm. She's like, come on, honey. And I was like, no, it's cool. It's cool. His wife is more prominent than he is, as a matter of fact. So I think she was like, oh, boy. But it was amicable. and It was totally fine. And I love these. I mean, I don't love these conversations, but I, I love having these conversations. And I was like, in what way? And he goes, I just, you know. And I was like, no, I, I, I'm good at like smiling, but persisting. And I was like, no, I don't know. I was like, I would love to. I was. I didn't put it like that because that's a little bit leading. But I was like, I, I would. I'd be curious to know where you think I'm hard left. 
And he goes, well, I, it's just like, he goes, you're just on Jason Kenny all the time. And his wife's like pulling out his arm again. She's like, come on. And I was like, have you been paying attention to the news cycle? He goes, no, I know it's good for clicks. I know it's good for ratings. And I was like, no, but like he's the lowest polling premier in Canada and his own party's calling for his head. And provincial news is national news these days. And, and so that's part of the reason why it seems like we're talking about him a lot because it's 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 like a train wreck and he goes yeah but he goes rachel notley is no better and i go well rachel notley first of all is not the premier and he goes yeah he goes but like i don't understand why you would support her and i said where am i supporting rachel notley he goes it's implied i'm like well i don't think it's implied you know, there's sort of these assumptions that are made, but but like Jason Kenny, I guess, is sort of to be treated as like this golden goose or this sort of this 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 man that should not be be criticized or should not be touched with regards to public commentary. Um, the federal conservatives have not treated their last two leaders that way. And it's been really difficult for for Andrew Shearer and for Aaron O'Toole to try to maintain. I mean, Stephen Harper was right in pointing out to Canadians that you're never going to win if you have different warring factions of, of small C conservative parties, if you have the federal progressive conservatives and you have the Canadian Alliance and both of them are, are you know, vying for, you know, 600,000 to to, uh, you know, 10 million votes, you're never going to have a, a winner. Whereas if the two come together, you can have a winner. But when you bring these two parties together or when you attempt to unite conservatives provincially or federally, it means that you have people. That are like, you know, gay men that are married, that smoke pot, uh, that are entrepreneurs, that believe in a conservative government's approach to whatever. And that's that's a conservative voter. And you also have people that homeschool their kids and would not get vaccinated and don't think that COVID's real. And quite frankly, you know, don't think that Canada should admit Muslims as part of the immigration policy. You know, and I'm sorry, your eyes go wide, but like I'm thinking of like emails we get. <laughs> this is like a real thing, right? I mean, you think of how conservatives and conservative parties have had to sort of try to manage this sort of big tent idea. Maybe it might be similar in other federal parties where you'd go, <clears throat> you could have a, a reasonable, pragmatic NDP voter that would just simply believe in like robust public programs and, you know, believe in, in, you know, a national pharmacare program. And then you'd have NDP supporters that are like hard left that, you know, have the Che tattoo on their arm and, and yada, yada, yada. And you go, well, yeah, these people are different. They don't they don't tend to glean the same sort of headlines. Number one, because they're not government or official opposition. But the idea of a big tent, it's tough to manage. And so Aaron O'Toole in this circumstance is, I think, going to try to appeal to people like me that are moderates, that are progressive conservatives. And he's going to say, this can be the party for you. We, we have to be taken seriously as a party. People have to be able to view and see us as government. And someone like Senator Denise Batters, who's I mean, if you just Google her, you'll be able to read years worth of commentary of hers on. And, and you know, it's been unpopular in the public, but she's been almost an I don't know if she's been an icon. I want to save that word for when it fits. But she's certainly, you know, been held in very high regard by prominent conservatives across the country. So this is actually a big deal for Aaron O'Toole to kick her out because it, it's, a, it's a bit of risky business for him. You know, I know there's a lot of people that have jumped to, to Senator Batter's defense mm. 
when people have been critical of things that she said, you know, she lost her husband in tragic circumstance to suicide. And and people will invoke that and say, like, how dare you know, Senator Batters has been through it. And, and I've seen conservatives jump to her defense and, and really sort of say that she's you know, she's a powerful voice out of the province of Saskatchewan. She's an important conservative. What do they do now? And what sort of a, as Aaron O'Toole puts his neck out there and takes a bit of a risk in kicking her out. On the flip side, what are you going to do? Like, are you going to let it stand? Jason Kenney's got the same sort of thing going on right now, right? Brian Jean wants to run in this Fort McMurray by-election. What are you going to do? Are you going to sign his nomination papers? Are you going to let him run? He's openly said he's he's running to take the leadership away from Jason Kenney. It seems to me, you, you know, you're, you're opening the door for the fox to enter the hen house. At the same time, if he doesn't, what message does that send? I mean, if we're going to go with sports analogies, when do you want to win? You want to win when you have, or maybe if you're ethical, <laughs> you want to win when you're against the best competitors. You yeah. don't want to win because you've, uh, you know, taken a sledgehammer to someone's ankles or baseball yeah, bats. Yeah. I think people just want the ring. People just want to win, period. Agreed. But I don't necessarily think that that, um, well, A, is ethical. But B, but you're talking politics, so let's ethics. Are, <laughs> I mean, Hoyles. I mean, I park I, that Hoyles. I love. Park it. I love that you are. I, I love that that's part of your conversation, and that's great. And the average person would consider ethics as part of their decision making process. But in politics, that's that's not a thing. It's unf- it's just not a thing. It's like win, win, get government win. Fair enough. I mean, I don't like it. Not fair, but enough so are you saying are you saying with kenny and brian jean are you saying that the 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 win against the best you're saying he should he should be able to have brian jean in the party and he should be able to maintain his leadership despite the fact that brian jean's there if he's doing a good job if he's listening to his constituents if he's you know keeping the door open for uh the caucus then he it shouldn't be a problem but if he's insecure if he's unsure about um you know where he stands then yeah i don't I don't know. I just think it's a tell. If he doesn't, if he doesn't sign those papers, huge, huge, huge tell. But there's been so many tells. I mean, it was oh like we, don't, we don't need tells anymore. It's like you know, we don't need tells anymore. But I, I get what you're saying. I'm kind of if I'm Jason Kenny, uh, it's a tough position to be in. Yeah, because if you, if you don't sign the papers, okay. it kind of looks bad on you. But if you do sign the papers, it's like, you know. I don't know why this sounds rude, but it's like you know the guy that has a crush on your wife, like inviting me into the hot tub with the two of you. It's like nah. You know, it's just it's just a weird move. Um, I, I think. Kenny what are you hanging out with that guy for, anyways? Uh, yeah, well, maybe you have a crush on his wife. Who knows? <laughs> but you know, with the, uh, the future of the, uh, am I thinking of like two people in particular right now? Oh, brother! Uh, so, you know, the future of, of conservative politics. It'll be interesting to see next elections if when they hold leaders, the liberals accountable. You know, if, yeah, I still I still think that is so funny. Last election, Canadians elected us to hold the liberals accountable. What? That is that is some grade A. That is like unbelievable spin. That's amazing. But that's not the focus. It's not. It, it's hilarious. I mean, the you know, the other part about Aaron O'Toole's thing that I didn't and I'm not here. I don't want to like pile on Aaron O'Toole. That's not the point. It's just so funny. It's like, you know, we are holding like in the first. I will not tolerate an individual. C- keep in mind, he's kicking out a senator. Uh, and when I say a popular senator, it depends who you talk to. She's very unpopular and she's very popular at the same time, depending on who you talk to. But he's kicking her out because she's calling into question his leadership. There are pro- there's trouble in paradise 
And in the first sentence, I will not tolerate an individual discrediting, showing lack of respect for the effort of the entire conservative caucus who are holding the corrupt and disastrous Trudeau government to account. Like the, it's, it, No, like the problem is in your backyard. You're talking about a problem in your back. It's amazing spin, right? It's, it's like Jason Kenney yesterday tweeting about trucks again. Right. Uh, the great time in Alberta to own a truck. And he shows this like video and it's not Jason Kenny tweeting. It's his like immature band of, you know, fools that, you know, these guys that get paid the quarter million dollars a year, each of them like like, uh, uh, you know, a quarter million bucks a year. These guys are making to, to go on and like troll Albertans on Twitter. It's kind, it's actually I mean, it, it's actually kind of maddening. Except these guys are these sort of like smug pricks that if they knew that they were making you mad, they would love it. They would do it more like that's kind of what drive. They're these immature sort of like just little they're like the kid. They're like the kids that were like, you know, in the classroom in the back, like, you know, throwing spitballs into the girl's hair. Like like these kind of guys. Right. Like they're, they're representing the premier's office, which used to mean something and which will mean something again in Alberta when this group is gone. But yesterday, tweeting like TikTok videos or whatever, it was like a video montage. And they're like, Alberta weather strikes back. Great time to own a truck. And they did it in response. They created this Twitter thread, which linked to a tweet that the premier sent out a while ago with the Toronto Star and its attack on pickup trucks. And, and it's kind of funny because this is the group of people that will talk about like virtue signaling and, and the left and identity politics. I mean, like you want to talk about identity politics. You want to talk about virtue signaling. The premier yesterday tweeting about trucks, right? While every other premier and every other political leader in the country is tweeting about other weather related things, namely British Columbia and what a disaster it is there and how our thoughts are with the people, our fellow Canadians in B.C. But why is Jason Kenney doing this? Why is Aaron O'Toole talking about, quote, the corrupt and disastrous Trudeau government to deflect and to distract because there's real problems in both of those parties. You can let me know what you think. Talk at RyanJesperson.com. In just a second, uh, Julie Van Rosendahl, great friend of this show, really looking forward to talking to her. First, I wanted to remind you, the team at Kubi Energy is providing solar energy solutions to power your life regardless of where you're at or what you're doing. Maybe you've got some massive warehouse and you're looking for ways to cut down your costs. You know, in the winter, the cost of heating that warehouse is going to be off the charts. You're going, where could we cut back on our utilities? Well, what about on the power side? Yeah, but solar, it's unreliable. In the winter, the days are short. What about battery storage? And how much does it cost anyway? These are the questions the team at Kubi wants to have a chance to answer. Why not swing by their website right now today at kubienergy.ca and get your free quote. Our friends at Grand Dog Essentials, I've been wanting to talk to you about their Instagram account. They've got an amazing thing going on right now. So you're going, okay, we've heard of quality raw food. Okay, we get it. You know, a lot of people are feeding their dogs, like people like the Jespersons are feeding their dogs quality raw food from Grand Dog Essentials. And, and we keep hearing that it's really good for the dogs. Keep hearing that the, the health benefits, but you can see it in the coat. You can see it in the, uh, the stool, you know. But maybe you're not ready to totally take the plunge on quality raw food. Swing by their Instagram at Grand Dog Essentials. I want to draw your attention in particular to this post. Five ways to boost your dog's kibble bowl. If you're feeding your dog kibble, you know that there are some fresh food options you can take that can really pay off on the health front, like adding in fruits and veggies or fish or fish oil, probiotics, enzymes, even eggs or organs. You can find the... Uh, 
I love this guts and glory. You can find the guts and glory supplement. More details on their website. So many different options to improve the health of your furry four-legged family members. You can find them at granddog.ca. The promo code REALTALK gets you 10% off your first-time order. They deliver it right to your door. So they're saying that, I mean, this is early, obviously, but this flooding in B.C., an absolute nightmare with regards to travel. Uh, So many communities affected. People's homes are affected. Farms, I mean, completely underwater. We're thinking about the animals. Obviously, what does this mean? We kind of know with a pit in our stomach what it kind of means. I mean, communities are rallying together to try to get cattle out of flooded areas. What what about the chicken farms? What about the... There's a lot to think about. They're estimating at least already, at least a billion dollars damage done. How about the supply chain? I mean, what does this mean about Canada's food supply? We wanted to go to to two players on the national food scene that are well-respected, certainly. And uh, we're hoping to speak with Chef Ned Bell a little bit later on in the show. But right now, what a pleasure to welcome back to the program the contributing food editor for The Globe and Mail. She's a columnist with the CBC. She writes cookbooks. You know her from her food and recipe blog, dinnerwithjulie.com. Our good friend, Julie Van Rosendahl. Welcome back to Real Talk. You look, I mean, most people hear this on the podcast, but can I say you've got an amazing Took. Um, your sweater game is yeah. top notch. You look. You are ready. Yeah. This. You Thank are. You. you are all wintered up. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. And I've got my long johns on down below, which you can't <laughs> yeah. see. Okay, good. And my Burks. I'm just really classing it up this morning. Are you going? Uh, you have the wool socks and Birkenstocks look. Uh, yes. Or, yes. Yes. I had to check. I had to look and see what socks I was wearing. But that was do, my, yeah. uh, that was my entire high school from 1992 totally. to 1995, literally almost every day, wool socks, Birkenstocks and a braided yeah. and a braided leather belt. Yeah. Those are you my, were that guy. I was that guy. What can I, uh, earrings, Birkenstocks. Yeah, yeah. I was very confused on the fashion front. Last time you were here, it feels like ages ago. I was actually doing the yeah. show from home. Uh, outside of our studio, I was isolating because we'd had a COVID contact and you were on mm-hmm. to talk to us about that story that you broke, Buttergate. Um, right, that, seems that so long ago. feels like an eternity ago. It does, and it was in February. Well, it kind of spilled over until March and April of 2021 because it just exploded, but yeah. Yeah. That, Can, that kind of rocked the dairy world. Before, before we get into like the obviously gut-wrenching and brutal reality that is the flooding in BC right now and the food implications, supply implications of that, uh, can you, for people that are going Buttergate, what the hell is that all about? Can, can you remind us about the story that you broke nationally and, and was there ever any resolution found? Well, there's a working group addressing the issue. So essentially, people had been talking for a while about how better butter was firmer at room temperature and hard to spread. And and I noticed it teaching pie and pastry classes, you know, and writing recipes that said butter at room temperature. Well, it's not soft enough at room temperature to beat and it's firm enough to put in your pastry. Anyway, I sort of did a, a deep dive and started thinking about what might change the texture of butter. And and my theory was that a change in the saturated fatty acid profile, you know, an increase in saturated fat, which is firm at room temperature, whereas unsaturated fats are are liquid at room temperature. Think of canola oil or olive oil versus lard or butter. And uh, and so when I sort of did some some digging into the feed, because, you know, how would you how would that change? I came across these uh, supplements, palm, palmitic acid supplements. So palm oil, palm fat uh, based supplements that are commonly given to dairy cows to boost the output and to boost the butter fat 
uh, the quantity of butterfat in the resulting milk. So it turns out, and it, it sort of exploded. I did all this research and then the University of Guelph uh, scientists went out and got a bunch of butter and tested them and actually proved a correlation between the palmitic acid, the levels of palmitic acid, which were going up as a result of the supplements and the firmness of butter, which is so cool. So the Dairy Farmers of Canada and the Quebec Dairy Farmers both said immediately to their farmers, stop using the supplements while we figure this out. And a working group was put together. And uh, so I've been trying to follow up on the working group and see what is happening and haven't had a whole lot of answers there, but, um, but amazing response that they actually asked farmers across Canada to stop using the supplements. Well, and you, I mean, that's you. And and by the way, we have you fonted as you describe yourself. I know it probably looks kind of funny to people, uh, but like in, you know, in TV terms. So your font is like Julie Van Rosendahl. We just have you as cook, writer, cook, author, writer, eater, because yeah. that's how you describe yourself on your Twitter. But what I loved about what you were doing, Julie, is I mean, yeah, people trust you with recipes and 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 but then you've got your food column. So you provide this insight into not just the beauty of food and the social elements of food and some of your favorite stories around food. Um, but also this was you going investigative journalist, which is, is mm-hmm. also a really neat element to it. You don't always see that by people that have a voice in food. Mm-hmm. But what it reminded me or I think what it reiterated to probably hundreds of thousands of people across Canada that were reading your work is that maybe I mean, I always think, you know, with, with regards to food, air and water, uh, we use it. We survive with these elements every single day. But mm-hmm. on talk shows, as an example, do we mm-hmm. talk enough about food, air, and water? And maybe mm-hmm. not. And I love that you that you sort of took that angle on it because I mean, it was actually you know it's kind of a big deal, right? It's 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 a bigger picture thing about what's going into our food, who are the players, who's holding them accountable, when do we notice interruptions, how do we pursue it, how do we seek or find our knowledge, etc. There's so much behind how we decide to spend our food dollars, what, you know, what we eat, how we prepare it, how we consume it. And a lot of people don't, uh, don't ask questions, right? You go to the grocery store and you see the eggs and the milk and the produce and, and, you know, we, we are used to getting produce year round from around the world. We don't even understand what's seasonal anymore, but, uh, you know, the impact of our food choices is, is is huge in a lot of ways you know and climate change for sure is one of them but uh but you know a lot of what we hear about food is marketing right big food has billions of dollars to market the the image of the you know the red the red barn and that you know we have the all these to sort of jump in another direction but still stay on topic we have all these plant butters out now that are primarily palm fats, right? But they're on the front of the package. There's the barn, there's the rolling canola field. So what we see, you know, is, is manufactured often by, by the PR departments and the marketing companies that, uh, that sort of create this narrative that we want to believe, right? We want to believe in that all our food comes from these small farms and, and, and agriculture has changed enormous, enormously, obviously. And, Oh, man. I mean, okay. so we we should reiterate you are. This is why you and I have known each other for more than 10 years. I don't know how many interviews we've done, how many times we've hung out. Some of my favorite mornings 
have been like six eight you roll in at like 5 30 to a tv studio yeah and you you always it's probably not the first time you've worn a toque that we've hung out and no. uh this is probably the most dressed down i've ever been but you and i always get into these conversations and then about 25 minutes in we go okay let's talk oh, about what you're right. here to talk about and so yeah. we'll talk about bc and the floods but that's kind of the whole point. Food brings people together. Food gets people talking. Mm-hmm. And you're one of the voices across the country that people trust when it comes to food. The The evolution of farming is fascinating to see. Uh, yeah. You know, fewer and fewer family arm farms, bigger and bigger farms. There's there's mm-hmm. uh, issues around succession, like generational kind of transitions on mm-hmm. family farms. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this obviously is driven by consumer demand and is driven by the yeah. market. You know, I mean, Jim Prentice with these sort of famous words that, you know, people need to look in the mirror. It applies to so many different things, including trends in food. Right. Yeah. Well, and how we how we eat has changed enormously throughout the pandemic. Right. I mean, we saw all these surpluses, all these surplus potatoes as the restaurants closed. We had, you know, all the industries were impacted by the closure of restaurants, institutions, um, you know, school cafeterias, all those places. So we had there was shortages of packaging, for example, because people were buying, you know, maybe as much dairy, but in smaller packages because they were buying it at the grocery store. Everyone was cooking for themselves rather than going out to eat. I mean, we've cooked more this past year and a half than we ever have in our lives. People are paying attention to food waste, uh, you know, learning how to use what they have because. People are worried about finances. People are not able to go to the grocery store as easily as they were. Or, you know, last year it was trickier. But, um, but yeah, I mean, our our whole our food systems have really been sh- shaken up. And uh, how we approach food and and how we pay attention to feeding ourselves and feeding each other and ensuring our neighbors are fed and uh, you know food waste, all these big issues that relate to food. Um, and you know, before the pandemic, a third of Canadians followed some sort of dietary regime, you know, whether it was vegetarianism, veganism, you know, whole food, whatever, paleo, all these plans, there are all these ways of sort of structuring how you eat. Sorry, I'm hitting my microphone because I talk with my hands. (laughs) And I imagine that has changed too, you know, because that, you know, we haven't had, a lot of us don't have the luxury to, to be as, as rigid with our food choices. And, uh, you know, and we're we're cooking more to comfort ourselves and comfort each other. And anyway, we were talking about this. Well, I need to. No, you don't need to. You don't need to get focused, or you don't need to stop talking. You don't need to do anything. Okay, oh, we're hanging out. We're having coffee. That's what we do. Yay. There's there's several hundred people hanging out with us right now, and several thousand will hang out later and listen to this. And and we love having you here. Um, Joanne chimes in. Um, I want to do it because she uses a lot of exclamation marks. So I want to do it justice. Her comment. She goes. Me too. She goes. Hi, Julie. And then she goes, I love Julie. She goes, I love Julie's recipes. She's a brilliant writer. And then you have to bring me up to speed on what Joanne's talking about here. I don't know. Uh She says Buttergate and the beaver tail debacle were awesome. What's she talking about? Everybody knows beaver tails, the Canadian institution that is this dessert. Oh my gosh. Or is it a dessert? Yeah, I guess it's a dessert. It's a treat. It's fried dough. It's It's, a fried dough. It's fried dough with, with baking sugar on top, right? With cinnamon Ice, sugar. So, cinnamon sugar. Baking or icing sugar, sugar is not a thing. Icing sugar, sorry. Baking sugar. What is baking sugar? I don't know. Please don't question me on the specifics. It, so this was probably 2018, maybe. Okay. And anyway, so I I made beaver tails and I, I posted a recipe on my website and said, you know, it's trademarked by this company in Quebec, I believe. Uh, they've been around for a long time, but they own the, you know, the, sure. the name Beaver Tail. 
Uh, anyway, I got a cease and desist letter oh. um, from the company saying you can't use the word beaver tails. And I was like, okay. So I changed it to, uh, oh, geez, I can't remember what I changed it to, beaver donuts or something. I kind of went on my website and changed it quickly. I got another letter, said, uh, this is confusing. You cannot use beaver donuts. Uh, anyway, I can't remember all the specifics, but I got another cease and desist letter. So then I got sort of annoyed and I changed it to uh semi-aquatic rodent posterior donuts ah. <laughs> and i tweeted like is that okay can i use that and it just for some reason it exploded and it, you know i was on like the national like the cbc national it was one of those probably stories. Pretty, pretty good for your business it, i guess i guess so so then it exploded and people were like how dare you tell us we can't use the word donuts and we can't use the word beaver we can't you know like we're canadian and uh the whole cease and desist so, thing is fascinating. I've I've talked. To, I, a buddy of mine has an independent burger joint, and he had a he had a, a burger that was too close to the the fillet of fish, basically. Oh, and yeah. McDonald's came after him, and uh, and and it was amazing. I said, "How was this for your business?" He goes, "The exposure was incredible." Yeah. Uh, another buddy of mine, they have this uh, rig hand distillery. Jeff Stewart is his name. They they do this mm-hmm. double double coffee creamer. And mm-hmm. I said to him, "I go, you know, like Tim Hortons is going to sue you." And he goes, he goes, I hope Tim Hortons sues me. He goes, that would, he goes, that would be absolutely incredible if Tim Hortons would sue me. The cease and desist is kind of an, kind of an interesting uh, lever for these, for these to pull, right? So right. anyway, but some random guy on our live chat, that's actually the handle that he uses, says, I, I, I started giving baking a try post Buttergate. And uh, I was wondering why I couldn't cream anything properly until Julie's story broke. Imagine if Julie didn't start this whole thing. We'd still be eating hard butter, wondering why we're not capable of baking. So you're changing lives here, Julie. Um, let, let's get to I mean, this is always like yeah. it sucks to talk about this stuff, because as we think about right now, we're not evaluating something that did happen. We're evaluating or talking about something that is happening currently yeah. as we speak. People. I want to say across the province of British Columbia, but in particular in the Fraser Valley and into greater mm-hmm. Vancouver are, as we speak, trying to save the lives of, of animals. I'm just trying to save human lives as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Flooding is destroying in entire, uh, I mean, people's residences is destroying communities. Uh, entire farms are underwater and demolished. Uh, it, it's hard. Ugh. I think at this stage, you know, people are saying there's at least a billion dollars damage that's already been done. I think that's that that number is going to grow exponentially, yeah. to say the yeah. least. Um, you're you're in the business of food, and yes. this is your passion. So, I mean, how are you? I mean, I I know how you're viewing this story because you've been open about it on your social media. But how are you wrapping your mind around some of these images and the story that you're seeing? It's it's horrific, as you say. And I just got back from Tofino two days before all this happened, uh, and and so I've been hearing from friends on the island about you know highways. The Kennedy Lake is w- washed out, and and I mean all, throughout the interior. I mean I've been driving through the BC interior for my whole life, pretty much, and uh, it, it's it's horrific to see. It's horrible that at least one life has been lost. Um, and that they suspect more will will be discovered, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and living in Calgary, we had the floods in 2013. I mean, we that I I am in Ramsey, which is in downtown Calgary, right yeah. behind the Stampede, the only area in this sort of close to the river that was not evacuated because we were behind Scotsman's Hill, which is essentially a giant berm. Um, 
so anyway, having seen that and just watching the footage is 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 horrific. I mean, the Fraser Valley is this most significant uh, region in BC in terms of of food production, mm-hmm. right? And and so knowing, uh, oh, there's my tweet. Yeah, it's it, it, knowing how much food uh, is produced there for BC for the rest of Canada. Not only the farms being impacted, and you know they they produce beef, pork, chicken, dairy produce all through the interior. Uh, I think there's almost 3000 farms in the Fraser Valley. And, uh, and, you know, as you said, thinking of all those animals that obviously they're, they're unable to evacuate. It's a bit easier to, to move people than all the, the chickens and the pigs and the, the cows. And, uh, and so, you know, and it used to be a lake, right? It was, it was, they built a dam, I believe in the fifties, um, but don't quote me on that, although I know it's officially on record, but th- so they're worried now the pumps are they were reporting this morning that the pumps are sort of working at full tilt. And if any of them fail, the area is going to return to its, its, you know, status as a lake. So, you know, it could get worse. Um, but besides that, there's the, the rail disruptions, right? The railway is closed. The yeah. roads, dis- you know, and our, and our supply chain has already been hugely impacted. Um, not only because we're, you know, we're ordering everything online. Um, there are shortages of drivers. There are shortages of, of dock workers. The Port of Vancouver is the fourth largest in North America. And, uh, you know, we've, we've got grain feed crops, specialty crops in terms of food, um, 35 million tons came through the port of Vancouver in, in 2020. And I was just reading before we went on that uh, in mid 2021, um, the port of Vancouver posted that they had record grain volumes through uh, through the first half of the year, you know, and, and it, of course in the prairies, we saw huge droughts um, through the summer. So our, our wheat crops, our canola crops have already been, hugely, hugely impacted lowest, um, crops since 2012, um, perhaps even longer. And so we're seeing, you know, increases in prices of wheat, of of canola, um, all our grains, all grains, except corn, uh, which is mostly grown out in Ontario. Um, we're, we're hit by these, these heat waves, right? I mean, think about what was it three months ago? The BC interior was wildfires driving back through, through the interior, through the Coca-Cola uh, this summer, I was driving through, through wildfires, you know, and uh, I have so many friends who were either evacuated or on evacuation alert due to the wildfires. So we had these record heats. We had the wildfires. Um, we had the drought. So that's impacting crop. And then our, our supply chain, I think, you know, it's, it's really forcing us to take a look at, um, how yes that's a great tweet those photos are like for people tuning in on the podcast we're showing we're showing the same (laughs) the same bend of highway a bc highway that three months ago the entire landscape was ablaze yeah and the exact same turn on that highway now is covered with with mudslide with rock slide it's 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 close one of the i mean 
it's uh, as I'm listening to you, and I know this is not meant to be an insult, uh, but like when <laughs> you're like, wait, what are you about? What are you about to say? <laughs> yeah. But the more that you talk, the my level of anxiety is rising because you're going fact mm-hmm. after fact after fact after fact. Uh, you're mm-hmm. going like this is impacting canola. This is impacting wheat. This is going to impact produce. This is going to impact dairy. Impact imports impact exports impact transportation of goods um like it's it's uh you know it's to a point now and i guess maybe some people might not like just human beings and this is not an indictment of the entire human race but we don't really take issues seriously until they become relevant to us right like look at COVID 19 look at the pandemic like when it was like out of wuhan and there were like some reports of like asia being impacted and people Mm -hmm. are kind of like yeah i mean it was like popping up in some news stories and then it it touched down in canada and there were a couple you know travel related cases and then people kind of started taking it seriously that's just Mm -hmm. how we operate as humans right um Mm -hmm. if there's if there's a massive house fire across town it's not as much of a concern for obvious reasons as if it's next door to your house Mm -hmm. and now you kind of wonder and and this is your wheelhouse house what does what do grocery prices look like three months or six months from now what does supply look like what does the industry look like what do potential bailout packages look like for agricultural producers what are the implications of the health of people's businesses right i mean there's mm-hmm. restaurants i mean etc 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 yeah so many implications you know in restaurants the hospitality industry employs a, a quarter of our young people or did yeah. before the pandemic and like the, the the trickle down effect is huge and we're you know ignorance is bliss in a lot of ways we don't we just we see the beautiful produce you know on the at the farmer's market or the grocery store and we don't we don't really think about the process that it took to get there and you know and produce even has been impacted in in bc with a shortage of of people uh to harvest everything all, all the 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 crops. So um, there's been such a, a huge impact. And, you know, you mentioned when you see it in your own backyard, when it affects us, then, it, you know, people start to pay attention. Um, I've been seeing so much footage from Vernon, Kelowna, Kamloops uh, of empty grocery store shelves, right? As uh, people are already worried that this is going to impact them at home and, and trying to um, stock up. And I'm sure a lot of people are overbuying. Um, which we saw a lot of early in the pandemic. Um, but yeah, we just take, we take so much for granted, um, you know, that, that whatever we need, whatever we want is going to be there and don't sort of think of, uh, you know, the whole, the process from the farmers, from the people who harvest the food, the people who package it, the people who ship it, you know, and I was just talking to my sister who is a chocolatier in Calgary and she, you know, th- th- we're also seeing uh, paper shortages. So, you know, magazines are affected and, and books are delayed and packaging uh, is delayed. And then so my sister is saying, well, if we can't get these ingredients, we can't change the formula because it has to be on the packaging. We can't get all the packaging reprinted. Right. Like these things that we just don't think of on a consumer level um, that are just that are huge and that are impacting the, the food industry in so many ways. It's uh, it's interesting to see people chiming in the live chat as we're talking. If you're just tuning in on on the Mixler live audio streaming app, we're talking to Julie Van Rosendahl. Uh, You know, Jill says, I can't believe this is happening, but I can believe it. We were warned. And she says, and this is just the beginning. 
Uh, people are pointing out the price of groceries, right? Like Deborah says a head of romaine lettuce is five bucks right now. Um, mm-hmm. Fatima says, I truly hope that instead of panic buying, because there are reports, some people um, here letting us know that, you know, they've been at certain grocery stores or outlets where, you know, shelves are being cleared in, in Kelowna and Kamloops and yep. other BC yeah. communities. Fatima says, instead of panic buying, I hope that, you know, we can make a push for everybody to make a $10 donation to a food bank. So many families mm-hmm. will be negatively affected by this. The cost of food is such it deserves uh, and demands quite frankly julie so much more of our focus we're talking about affordable child care earlier this mm-hmm. week it's been a big part of our conversation on real talk for mm-hmm. obvious reasons the province of alberta mm-hmm. reaching a deal with the federal government worth about four billion dollars on the mm-hmm. way to ten dollar a day child care and you know one of the more recurring comments from people is about what this will mean for lower income families and the quality of food that'll be on the mm-hmm. table for kids and i think that that's really telling Absolutely. And I think one thing that the pandemic has has taught us is how important it is for us to pay attention to the people around us and take care of each other, you know, in sort of a very grassroots, hands-on way, right? Um, And I know a lot of the agencies are, you know, are, are receiving a lot of relief funds from the government level, from all levels. And but the distribution, getting it out there, reaching people is is a different thing. Um, which isn't to say that people shouldn't support organizations. Obviously, they should. But you know, p- paying attention to the kids in your kids' class at school—those small things, right? Can I drop off an extra bag of oranges with my kids' lunch for the school? Like just these little. How can I help the people in my community directly with fewer fewest steps in between? And you know, not everyone can afford to write a big check. Um, not everyone can afford ten dollars. Uh, I'm hoping that, you know, those who can are, mm. are sharing what they have, but um, but those little daily things really make such a big difference. And I think it's just important to have conversations like this, like this kind of yeah. has the vibe of you and I having coffee, even though we're talking about something that's gut wrenching, um, just mm-hmm. to be able to put issues on people's radar and get people thinking about some of the implications of you know what we're seeing right now you know i mean there's a lot of conversation in our live chat right now about climate change and climate policy and this on the heels of cop 26 and and i mean there's there's so much to talk about and a lot of times the most important issues or stories in our lives or the crises in our lives are 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 intertwined in ways right i mean you know this it's interesting to see people talk i mean gosh you know cam in a pizzeria is is watching us this morning he says what about packaging cam owns a pizza yeah. joint. He says pizza box prices yeah. have. Have you heard this increased forty seven percent in the last eighteen yeah. months for boxes? Because there's paper shortage. It's it's impacting. Yes, like so what I was saying about my sister's cho- chocolate company. She's like the packaging. You know, if we change, we we can't get the ingredients. We can't change the packaging because we'd have to get the packaging reprinted. Like it's crazy. And you know, books are being delayed. The publishing industry is impacted. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just so much pizza boxes, things that we just don't think of on a consumer level. Um, and that's affecting prices, it's affecting, you know, small businesses. And we need to really, you know, once these small businesses go under, they're not going to come back. Right. And so, um, yeah, it's tough. People are, I love that people are paying attention to how they spend their money and realizing that it can make a huge difference to the small businesses in our communities. I mean, unfortunately, Amazon still exists. <laughs> Don't get me started on that. But um, yeah, it's just. Uh, do you do you boycott Amazon? I do not order from Amazon. Amazon ruins. Pe- ugh, people probably I, buy your books from Amazon. 
No, well, my books that I do are not on Amazon. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. On purpose? Yeah. I went on purpose. Yeah. I went back to self-publishing. Not to, you know, shame anybody who needs to use Amazon, but it's it's ruining a lot of things for a lot of people. You know, and it's driving, I mean, the whole publishing industry, that's a whole other conversation, right? Like the margins are so slim. Most big publishers get all their books printed in China now, right? Like overseas, they have to, the the shipping and the printing, like the process is so long. And so I'm hearing about all these books that are being delayed because they're being printed overseas. So between the paper and the shipping and the, you know, trucking and the, it, it takes forever. Um, I get my books printed in Canada in Manitoba. And, uh, and I know a lot of smaller publishers do, but um, yeah, I can't remember how I got onto this, but publishing, you were talking yeah, about Amazon margins. and how Amazon's like basically <laughs> a cancer. And then, well, uh, and, and then I, and then I sort of uh, cheekily pointed out, you're probably making millions of dollars off Amazon. And then you quickly snap corrected me, but I'm not You put me I'm back not. in line and let me know that you're not. And you established yeah. the integrity that is part of the reason why people always go to dinner with Julie.com to find out what you're doing <laughs> and what you're writing about Julie Van Rosendahl. It is always a highlight of our week when we get to welcome you to the show, when I get to see your face Aww. again, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you, and I love being on the show. Thanks for having me Thanks, Julie. Have a great rest of your week. That's Julie Van Rosendahl. Uh, She's a a cook, an author, a columnist, uh, obviously a commentator, does a great job. What we endeavor to do on the show is to take a look at a a national story, an international story in some circumstances, in this case, the flooding in B.C., and look at the implications of it. There are many. There are many. I mean, you know, right now, I mean, somebody pointed out yesterday that You know, you can't fly in Canada right now if you don't have proof of double vaccination and the highways are closed out of Vancouver, out of the lower mainland and trains are not running. And so basically, you know, if you're unvaccinated uh, and you're in Vancouver right now and you're trying to get somewhere else in Canada, you're screwed. I mean, that's that that's an interesting angle. What about all the transport trucks that aren't moving? What about the people that are stranded right now? I mean, the the implicate. And, and then, yeah. What about the people whose houses are underwater and the people who've lost livestock and the people like, you know, so we sort of want to investigate different angles and understand the, the, the wide breadth of these stories and what they mean to you our audience across the country that tunes into Real Talk every single day. In just a second, we're going to take a look at trail protection. Ecologist Dr. Mark Boyce is going to join us. I bet you Dr. Boyce has a take on the floods that are going on right now and some insight into what's happening in B.C. as an ecologist. What an interesting perspective he have, he'll have. he uh, First, I want to remind, speaking of getting outdoors, I want to r- remind you about this rebrand that we're witnessing in real time since the 1960s. And with their parent company, uh, you know, before that, for about a hundred years, people have trusted Campers Village for their outdoor needs while they have just launched a refresh. Breathe Outdoors. You can check them out online at breatheoutdoors.ca or in person at their stores. I mean, an absolutely beautiful job. They're outdoor enthusiasts. They want to basically remind you they can facilitate your adventure by sharing their expert advice. They've stocked a curated selection of quality outdoor products, but they're about so much more than camping, right? They're organizing events to enable you to improve not just the physical, but the emotional and spiritual well-being of your life. That's the whole point of getting outside, right? A one-stop shop is Breathe Outdoors for people seeking to reconnect, recharge, and refresh. 
So maybe your thing is kayaking or canoeing or trail running or rock climbing or hiking, or maybe maybe you're a, an enthusiastic dog walker. You get it every single day and you want to make sure you have the best gear for that. Maybe it's adventure travel that floats your boat. We encourage you to check out Breathe Outdoors and... If you spend a minimum of $30 at Breathe Outdoors and you let them know at the till that you're a real talker, you drop my name, you drop the name of the show, they've got a beautiful mug for you, a Breathe Outdoors branded mug for anybody that spends $30 in a Breathe Outdoors store and references real talk. What a great promotion there. Our friends at Friesen Brothers, today's a big day for them. Charlie, their sourdough starter turns six today. And that means that if you visit a Friesen Brothers location, any of the 16 across the province of Alberta, and if you pick up a sourdough, why wouldn't you? They're going to hook you up with a free Friesen Brothers cinnamon spread plus 5,000 smart shopper bonus points. That's today only. You can find more details at Friesen.com slash Charlie. Why not be like Kathy? who sent us this tweet yesterday. This is amazing. Kathy says, as you speak about the Friesen Brothers sourdough, it's what's for breakfast. Look at that. Sam, do you think, is that, that's avocado toast, I'm guessing, with with like some chia seed or something on that. That looks like about the healthiest breakfast you could have. Oh, it looks delicious. It looked absolutely delicious. Stunning work yes. by Kathy. Nicely done on the Friesen Brothers sourdough. It's what's for breakfast or or lunch or dinner or midnight snack. It's the best sourdough you're going to try. I'll guarantee you that at Friesen Brothers, Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Dr. Mark Boyce is a professor of ecology at the University of Alberta. He's also the Alberta Conservation Association chair in fisheries and wildlife. We've invited Dr. Boyce on the show to talk about this new Trails Act, Bill 79. You may have heard of it. Uh, We're talking provincial politics here in Alberta, but I think it probably makes sense to ask Dr. Boyce out of the gates about what's happening in BC right now. Doc, thanks for making time for us and welcome to Real Talk. It's nice to have you here. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, This, uh, from an ecologist's perspective, uh, what observations are you making or how are you wrapping your mind around what we're witnessing in British Columbia right now? We saw this coming for some time. There's a huge cyclone that developed over the Pacific, and it's one of the biggest storms that that has ever confronted the the West Coast. And and so enormous amount of of, uh, precipitation and with um, uh, fires and salvage logging uh, on on many of the slopes, uh, there's nothing to hold the the water back and it creates uh, a much more dangerous situation for for mudslides and things like that. So it's it's uh, definitely a very dangerous situation and uh, horrific. I mean, I'm just it's it's hard to imagine that we you can't get to Vancouver from here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and there's people that are there that can't get out, and and then you look at some of this damage. I remember you know Alberta coming up on a decade ago. You looked at some of those highways. This isn't the type of highway repair that happens overnight. This is going to be a problem for a while. They're not even at the cleanup phase yet, let alone the reconstruction phase. I wanted to ask you. I'm glad you brought up forestry and logging because I've I've seen some people leaving comments about. It. I've seen some chatter online about it. We've been talking a lot about logging in BC in a different context about blockades in places like Ferry Creek um, and some of the old growth stuff. But but do you think there's a, a direct line to be drawn with regards to, to some of the damage we're seeing right now and the impact of, of logging? You can draw a straight line there. Uh, a straight line isn't isn't possible, maybe possible, but it, but it's certainly true that that uh, removing vegetation from the 
the hillsides associated with the fires that we had, for example, uh, creates a, a situation where um, the precipitation uh, ha uh, saturates the soil and creates a, um, a much greater runoff uh, uh, potential, as well as uh, loosening the 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 uh, uh, retention of, of soil, and so mudslides are much more likely to occur. That's that that's maybe not a straight line, but it's certainly um, uh, relevant. Uh, Mark, before we get on to Alberta's new Trails Act and and why legislation is important and whether or not you think it goes far enough and all that, um, I always want to ask an expert like you um, about this BC story and about what's happening there with our fellow Canadians there on the West Coast. Is there anything that you're not seeing discussed? Um, you know, in, in news reports or not seeing discussed as part of public dialogue that you think is relevant or important? Is, is there an angle on this that you think needs to be more in the spotlight? I have not seen data on where the um, where the logging and salvage logging has taken place relative to where the landslides are. And so I don't know. And, and that would those would be interesting data to uh, uh, to, to see. OK, let's let's get into this. This Bill 79, uh, Alberta's new Trails Act for, for people uh, that are not familiar with what's going on. The environment minister, Minister of Environment and Parks, Jason Nixon, has said that this Trails Act will not close any trails. It will lay out a path uh, for new ones. Uh, second reading in the legislature just a couple of days ago. Uh, what do you make of the Trails Act in particular and, 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 and some of the discussion around it? What do you think people need to know? Well, I've read the act and it, it's. Um, it's pretty boring piece of legislation, basic, but, it, but it gives um, uh, the Minister of Environment and Parks uh, substantial authority to set regulations and restrictions and designations for trails, which is a good thing. And I think that, that, that the act overall um, has the potential to be really, um, really useful, it, but it depends on how it's how it's used and and Nixon has made it clear that he's not going to close trails if anything he's going to he's going to open new ones and that's the last thing we need on the east slopes are additional trails that said having um as, as has as he has indicated uh an opportunity to improve trails to to clean up some of the stream crossings where um, you know the quads just go th go go through the streams and and churn everything up and make a big mud hole out of everything. Putting bridges in those kinds of places and improving the tra the, the trails so that there's less runoff and less wildlife habitat destruction is a really good thing. <clears throat> that said, th there's no comment about wildlife habitat. There's no um, context provided for how Nixon can use and would use the Trails Act to to um, protect wildlife habitats. And uh, we have extensive uh, trail network that has, has developed along the East Slopes. Outside of protected areas, it, the, the East Slopes are just chock-a-block full of, of trails that go down cut lines and, and uh, uh, pipe, pipeline corridors and, and uh, uh, right-of-ways for, for power lines. Uh, there, there are trails all over the place. And and those interfere with habitat for uh, for grizzly bears and elk in particular, um, and and that's well documented that um, that quad use on on these trails displaces um, wildlife 
out to about 500 meters or so. And so there's a loss of habitat associated with these trails. And if we can concentrate some of the trail use to designated trails, that could be an improvement. And the, the legislation has the, the potential to be a, a real beneficial thing for wildlife, but it, it hasn't even been discussed by, by um, Alberta Environment and Parks. And, and the, the whole business about creating new trails is the last thing we, we need to see on the East Slopes. I'm wondering if you, I mean, the ministry, the name of the ministry, I mean, it, it, right now, is, is Alberta environment somewhat of an oxymoron uh, under this government? <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> is that fair? Um, there, there are some very good people who work for Alberta Environment and Parks who are doing their best to, to uh, um, uh, protect the environment and to um, manage wildlife uh, uh, effectively. And I would say by and large, they're doing so. But there are a number of, of uh, issues like, like uh, trails and parks and, and protected areas that have, have not done well under the, the, uh, the current UCP government. Um, and so uh, at the time that, that the UCP government came in, uh, there was a, a very strong movement to uh, protect some of the bighorn area west of, of Nordegg um, along the Front Range and uh, with, with some uh, wildland parks where hunting is allowed, trapping is allowed, um, but to, to manage those areas more carefully uh, and, um, uh, to protect wildlife habitat. There was a long list of former wildlife biologists, former employees of what used to be sustainable resource development and before that environmental protection. And it's had several names since I've moved to Alberta, but um, uh, former employees, wildlife biologists who, who signed a letter saying how important this, um, this bighorn uh, protected zone was going to be for wildlife. Um, but uh, the first thing that Nixon did was to get rid of the whole thing. Um, so Nixon recreates in that area. He's a quad user and, and uh, uh, there's a, a strong local sentiment against parks because their, their sense is that it's going to take the areas um, out of production. It's going to, going to pr create protected zones where they can't recreate. They can't do what they, they're used to doing. Um, and I, I think to, to some degree that that's, um, that's incorrect. Uh, but in some cases, it's important that we have protected areas and that we restrict access. Um, access management is the most important thing we can do for grizzly bear habitat management. Uh, Ted Morton, when he was uh, Minister of Sustainable Resource Development, uh, um, followed the guidelines from the grizzly bear management plan uh, to have a core area with no more than 0.6 kilometers of road per square kilometer, um, and then a, a buffer zone around, around that. But um, the, there's no talk about, about protecting uh, wildlife habitat by the current uh, uh, government. Yet again, uh, the East Slopes are where we're seeing much more uh, development than than in other uh, uh, wildlife uh, habitat areas. Same, I mean, for people's reference, same neck of the woods where, I mean, we talked a lot about coal exploration. I mean, that story blew up. Uh, by the way, we're going to have 
uh, Craig Snodgrass, Corp Lund are going to be joining us on the show again in, in days to come. We've got them booked to sort of circle back on that Cole story. Um, Dr. Boyce, you did an interview with the Canadian press that I, that I read and, and they note in there they were like, Dr. You know, Dr. Mark Boyce, who uses an off road vehicle himself. And I thought that that was uh, uh, an interesting note to make. I also am an off-road enthusiast, and I welcome these types of conversations because I think that the entire community, uh, those that drive ATVs and Jeeps and and side-by-sides, I I don't know if I want to say they get a bad rap because I think some of it is certainly earned criticism. Um, but I think it's also important for people to be able to find a balance and it's in, in the same ways that hunters will talk about sustainability with wildlife population because they care, um, you know, the majority of them do. Uh, how do you reconcile, you know, your enthusiasm for the great outdoors by way of motorized vehicles and, you know, your education as an ecologist and, and obviously clearly the way that you feel about protecting the planet? Uh, so in, indeed, we have a cabin uh, near near Nordeg, and it's we access it using using quads and snowmobiles in in the winter time. Um, I believe that I'm a conscientious uh, uh, off road vehicle user. Uh, there are many trails designated in in um, uh, Clearwater County that are for off highway vehicles only. No highway vehicles allowed, and uh, Clearwater County has done a magnificent job of improving the trails around Nordic with graveling some of the the the, the muddy stretches, uh, putting in bridges uh, and 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 doing other things to reduce the effect that that these trails are having on on the landscape so that you don't get these wide zones through a wet a wet area where you have, you know, 10, 10 tracks where people have gone through to try to get to, to get get through or around this wet area uh, at various times of the year. Uh, so by, by focusing on designated trails and improving those trails, we can reduce the effect that off-highway vehicles have. But there need to be restrictions. I mean, one of the worst things that happens is in some places where, where um, quads get up into the, into the high country, into the alpine, uh, into bighorn sheep habitat. I mean, it just, it's not necessary. It's, it's destructive. And those kinds of places need to be, there need to be restrictions on, on uh, um, uh, quad use. So quads can be useful for getting into the, into, into remote areas and setting up a base camp and then say hunting from, from there, that kind of thing. And if it's done well, off-highway vehicle use, I think is, is well, it's here to stay. It's very popular. The demand for for um, uh, off-highway vehicles right now is over the top. It, you can't find many of the ones that um, that, that are popular uh, at, at the dealership. Um, I just put in an order at Honda Extreme for a, for a, a new side by side, and it's going to be five or six months before I can get before I can before I can get it. Well, I'm I'm grateful that I mean I want to have a conversation like this with somebody. I mean, I'll have conversations like this with anybody, but but I I I in my mind do I want to say there's more credibility? There's just there's just an added level of nuance uh to the conversation because I think that um oftentimes politicians and other people um you know can can sit there and say, you know, this new trails act if people are opposing it, they don't want you to be able to get out with your family. You know, they want to take away the keys to your quad. You know, they want to take away your your family's tradition of recreating in, in crown land or in the backcountry or in your favorite neck of the woods. And I think it's so important 
that we have these conversations that say, "Uh uh-uh, no, we get it. We're with you. But things like bull trout habitat or, you know, bighorn sheep habitat or grizzly habitat need to be part of the conversations. People need to understand riparian zones. People need to understand the science. And quite frankly, those conversations don't happen, but it becomes or it can be presented as a uh, yay or nay black and white type issue. And I think it's important that we have voices like yours and like mine from people that can relate and understand and that enjoy that form of recreation that also say, listen, I mean, we could we could bury this whole thing if we don't manage it properly. There could be and there already are some very significant environmental or ecological consequences to human action in these areas. Nixon could have done such a better job of, of rolling this out because the way that the, the, the Trails Act is is worded, it gives him the authority to manage uh, um, habitats, uh, to manage the trail network in a way that could be very positive. But that hasn't been the way that it's been rolled out. And it's been basically a concession to the quad squad, you know, to allow uh, more access to the backcountry and, and improving the trails and, and whatnot. It's not necessarily the, the right way to, to roll it out, even though there may be places where improved trails are a real benefit for the um, off-highway vehicle users. Uh, but at the same time, we need to, to, to marry that with wildlife habitat protection and uh, uh, concentrating uh, uh, vehicle use on, on certain trails that, that get people into places where uh, recreation is, is popu- popular. But to allow it willy-nilly across the landscape has led to this, this mess out there on the east slopes and there are so many of these trails that are unnecessary and should be closed Hmm. dr mark boyce is uh, alberta conservation association chair in fisheries and wildlife a professor of ecology at the university of alberta really appreciate your perspective thanks for making time for us today my pleasure you can let us know what you think about what you've just heard talk at ryanjesperson.com is our email address and of course you can use that hashtag that's powered by Park Power. That's Real Talk RJ. That's the one that we keep an eye on, not just through the show, probably even more so in the hours following the show, to be honest with you. It's where you can keep a keen eye on what's going on with discussions spinning off from conversations we've had on the show. Park Power is your friendly local utilities provider, and you can find them online at parkpower.ca. That's where you can compare rates on electricity, natural gas, and internet you can contact them. They make switching over really easy. You don't have to be stuck on hold for, you know, I was going to say 45 minutes. That's actually not too bad. I saw Andrew Ference, former Oilers captain yesterday. He was he was on the phone with an airline. He was on hold for six hours on hold with an airline. Unbelievable. Maybe 45 minutes, not that bad. Not the point. Focus, Jesperson. Focus. Park power handles the switch over from your former utilities provider on your behalf couldn't be more simple the promo code my buddy walks texted me yesterday he goes what's the promo code for park power he says my house my household is switching over right now at a boy walks be like walks 2021 dash real talk is the promo code that gets you 70 dollars off your first bill no strings attached at parkpower.ca our friends at the dairy queens of northwest edmonton and sherwood park want to remind you that the flamethrower burger 
is their highlight burger for the month of November. This is the 100% all beef patty topped with that fiery flamethrower sauce. Real talker Aaron let us know yesterday his five-year-old digs the flamethrower sauce, digs his Dairy Queen chicken tenders into it, had a boy, pepper jack cheese, jalapeno bacon, plus the tomato and crisp lettuce that you've come to expect, the fresh veg on those Dairy Queen burgers. Why not pair it up with a sea salt toffee fudge blizzard? Sounds unbelievable. We'll call that the Jespo special, the Real Talk special for the month of November at the Dairy Queens of Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. I think that's a good idea, having the like the creamy milk-based uh, thing to cut the heat. Yes. Afterwards, so you have the heat, and then you bring it out. Like, just wrap it up with a bow. You know, they. You know that 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 panel of experts. People always say they say, they say. That milk is actually the. I mean, people are going to be like Jesperson. Tell some of you don't already know. This is so obvious. But if your mouth is on fire, don't go to water. Go to milk. And milk will put that fire out. So blizzard it is. So blizzard it is at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. <laughs> Very well done. You kind of wonder how that that five-year-old, how Aaron's five-year-old kind of got turned on to the flamethrower sauce in the first part. Like, I wonder if I wonder if they kept reaching for it and maybe maybe dad was like, and then was like, well, you got to kind of learn for yourself. Kids got to figure out for themselves. And then it probably just started hammering away at it undeterred. And they were like, what do we have here? Very well done. Like the first time somebody discovers wasabi and just digs it at a young age. Fantastic. Um, we we got a conversation coming up on on the, the Twitter algorithm and, and how it's it's been. Uh, I mean, this is fascinating stuff. Hoyles, you pointed this out in our production meeting this morning. People are talking about how the, the algorithm on Twitter kind of amplifies right wing content. And it's got people talking about what that means for public discourse. And, and we'll get into it with Dr. Tamara Shepard, um, who's a, an expert in government regulation of digital media. I'm expecting a fascinating conversation. But you were pointing out this was something this is actually a study. Um, pushed out by sponsored by paid for by Twitter which is kind of interesting it's not a third party review yeah I was expecting like when it first kind of got onto our radar I was expecting it to be you know third party researchers maybe MIT who knows and no 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 it came from Twitter itself which to me is interesting because it's like okay great they're doing their due diligence they're looking into this they're making sure that their algorithms are are performing effectively depending on what the effect they want is yeah <laughs> but are they telling us everything maybe i'm being you know suspicious or skeptical but also um what what does it tell us yeah we we've, we've got to start paying closer attention i think to understanding how the algorithms work the mm-hmm. average person me included does not understand and but you might sit there I mean, I mean it's it's even just like sort of basic stuff like wait a second i follow that person on instagram why do i never see their posts right or hey people used to engage my posts on facebook but it seems like nobody's seeing them anymore why is that or why are people not and and it is a thing and if you look you talk to people where do you get your news oh i get my news off facebook or i get my news off twitter now that's not like facebook doesn't have a newsroom I don't I promise I won't go off on a tangent here, but you don't get your news. You may that may be the platform where people are sharing news sources. But Mm -hmm. what are they sharing and how is it winding up in front of you? And it's kind of easy. I mean, you may say, I don't I don't I don't know what happened with who is it that told me yesterday. 
I can't remember if it was on or off the air. Someone talked to me yesterday about an engagement that broke off. Was this off the air? This must have been off the air. I don't ever call this. Okay, somebody I know. Who was it? Somebody told me this yesterday. Oh. An engagement broke off. No, it sounds like a good thing. Okay. Uh, because Buddy just like went off the deep end. Sort of the anti-vax, the tinfoil hat, kind of the QAnon, the really like off, like the, and I always want to say words like wackadoodle. It makes it sound like I'm trying to be funny. I'm not. It's deadly serious. I mean, January 6th was no joke. Um, but, you know, relationships are affected. People's lives are affected. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you kind of go, how did, how would this person that was, that was relatively, I don't want to say normal, but like balanced or like I knew him growing up or he didn't seem to be that outrageous. And then all of a sudden now he believes in Pizzagate and, and this pedophile ring and the cabal and, the, and, and you kind of go, how do people wind up there? Hmm. And it's probably sort of, you know, that that idea of death by a thousand cuts. It's not like all of a sudden somebody wakes up and goes, I'm going to believe all this stuff that is so unbelievable. But you start to just. You know, your sources of information, your context, the voices that you're hearing, uh, not just in your head, but, you know, I mean, the, 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 the platforms you pay attention to sort of start to, you know, become in a way like almost curated where almost, no totally curated, you know, where the, the, you know, information that is far from mainstream starts to appear as legit and mainstream and believable and credible. And I've talked about this. I banged this drum a million times on the show, talking about digital literacy and mm-hmm. common sense. And, you know, we talk about financial literacy and how that needs to be taught in schools. And it's just not. And uh, so anyway, fascinating conversation coming up with Dr. Tamara Shepard. I'm expecting you know, about 10 minutes from now. I wanted to leave some time to get some of the emails. People send us Joan yesterday was in touch. Uh, she says, uh, Ryan, and this was on the heels of our conversation about this child care deal. And Joan says, I'm so thrilled that parents with young kids will finally have access to quality, affordable child care. Um, Alberta, off the top of my head, were we the 10th jurisdiction? I think it was I think it was nine provinces and territories before Alberta. Um, Alberta and Ontario kind of holding out for the deals that they want. Uh, Alberta reaches this deal, as you know, announced uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, if you missed it, you can see our coverage by way of our YouTube channel or, of course, our podcast archive. Joan says, I can tell you what having to pay twelve hundred dollars a month for child care meant for me and my partner 20 years ago, 20 years ago, twelve hundred dollars a month. She says we both had good jobs. For context, I went and saw my buddy Wayne at uh, Kingsgate Automotive yesterday. He's turning some wrenches for us, getting our vehicles on the road. And Wayne had his beautiful 1995 pickup. It's still in like relative, I don't say mint condition, but he's kept it in really nice condition. And I was admiring it because that was my vintage, Sam, in high school. I always wanted the 95 Chevy Z71. That was like the pickup I wanted. And Wayne's telling me he's had it since basically it was new. Uh, one owner before him just briefly and, and he goes I still have the documents you know how much that truck was a nicely and not fully loaded but a nicely packaged four by four half ton in 1995 would you have a guess approximately mm, I'm gonna say 10,000 oh no no not quite 10 but 36,000 in 1995 for a nice four uh, by yes, four okay yeah, yeah, yeah. right I'm, just, I'm thinking yeah it's a nice four by four it's spec'd out yes yeah, yeah so I was way you were thinking more that. like 1960s yes but still not the point for context, like those pickups these days, seventy-five grand, easy, yeah. easy seventy-five grand, right? So when Joan says she's paying 20, 20 years ago when trucks were thirty-five grand instead of seventy-five, they're paying twelve hundred a month. That's a lot. Twelve hundred a month is a lot now. She says we both had good jobs, but it didn't make sense for me to work full time when over half of my income, over half, went to childcare. 
My husband had been with his company much longer than mine. So in order to maintain his pension, his benefits, we decided that I should move to part time, which thankfully was an option for me. How many women could tell this story, right? She says working part time didn't bring enough income for us. So I did contract work on the weekends and the evenings. And some of the work was awful and it was low pay. But it meant that the husband, my husband, was with our kids while I earned a few extra bucks. And it worked for us, but it meant that I was working all the time, she says, in all caps, all the time. She says it also meant that we didn't have a lot of family time. You know, when he's working, she's at home busting her ass. When, he, when she's working, busting her ass more, he's at home. She says there were financial ramifications for us. I was only working part time at my professional job, so I didn't contribute as much to my pension, which now 25 years later has made a big difference. We had many, many struggles finding quality child care, but there were times when I felt sick with worry for my kids, says Joan. We were constantly checking on them, sneaking out of work to, to see them, to make sure they were okay. And there were a lot of child care providers for my kids, and one in particular was horrible and only lasted a few weeks. And the stress that we felt was unbearable. Joan says, I remember calling our MLA, our elected representative, about the need for affordable child care. And Joan says, my MLA told me verbatim, when my kids were little, my wife stayed home. Joan says, what an asshole. As if staying home was an option for us peons. What a difference affordable child care would have made in our lives. Maybe more savings for emergencies, maybe more family time, for sure, less stress and a far better quality of life. Joan says, if I'm honest, I didn't think Alberta's premier, Jason Kenney, would agree to this deal. I thought that his ideology, I thought his hatred for the prime minister, for Justin Trudeau, would get in the way of doing the right thing for Alberta families. And I'm thrilled that he managed to put his big boy pants on and get the deal done. It'll be life changing for women, for poverty reduction for children, and for the economy. Thanks for bringing more attention to this vitally important issue. I love the show. That from Joan, whose email is going into the hopper for consideration, our email of the month, our Real Talk email of the month. Somebody is going to win this Real Talk Crescent mug. Once a month, we're going to ship that to you at no cost. You can be in touch with us anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Talking about family time, seems like a perfect time to head out to the mountains. We've been talking about preserving the environment we've been talking about enjoying getting outdoors every wednesday in partnership with our friends at tourism jasper it's such a pleasure to present my jasper memories and it is that time of year where i get really excited and i know that there are some sort of like pains in the butt when it comes to snow falling but it also means that marmot basin is ready to open in fact marmot basin is opening tomorrow Thursday, November 18th, when it's not charming people with its stunning views, this beloved ski spot, if you talk to the locals, they just call it the hill. It's winning accolades far and wide, recently ranked as the best, most affordable ski resort in North America, Marmot Basin. And it's certainly helped establish Jasper as the best ski town on the continent. I know that, you know, if you're, if you're in Vail or Banff or, 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 or any Squaw Valley or any of these places right now you're you're going to be going uh, really hey USA Today is the definitive source that has declared Jasper to be the best ski town on the continent that's USA Today that's pretty good press how much do you know about Marmot Basin I mean I love this it's got the highest base elevation of any Canadian ski area did you know that 
The lower chalet at 1,700 meters, technically 1,698 meters. That's the highest base elevation of any ski area in Canada. It also means that you've got these temperature inversions, which is super cool. If if you're up above the clouds, you're, you're way up there. A lot of times it's 10, 15 degrees warmer than it is down in the valley, which is fascinating. It's this amazing phenomenon to experience. And it also means that the ski season can last a little bit longer. So typically November to May, which is awesome. The longest high-speed quad chair in the Rockies. Very family-friendly. Can I show the photo? Can I shamelessly show this photo? This is Wyatt Rudy, our little guy, at his snowboard lessons there at Marmot. Every time we're out there, we mix in a few lessons. Mom and dad go shred the gnar. And then we get back together and go for a few runs as a family. Some of our best and most special family times have happened at Marmot Basin. If you want to see the current conditions, there's multiple webcams that are set up on the hill so you can check them before leaving home. You can know the type of day that you have in store and you can learn more by checking out jasper.travel slash real talk. Jasper.travel slash real talk. If you're going to be out at Marmot, if you're there for opening day tomorrow, we would love to see your photos. Obviously, we feature My Jasper Memories every Wednesday, but if you're sending us photos tomorrow, we'll show them tomorrow. We'll show them Friday. Just use the hashtags MyJasper and RealTalkRJ. We're so proud to partner with Tourism Jasper to present My Jasper Memories. In just a few moments, we're going to be talking about the Twitter algorithm. Twitter is, is sort of is it fair to call it Hoyles? I don't want to I don't want to sort of get all sensational and inaccurate about this. But essentially, the implications of this is that Twitter essentially has been kind of a right wing amplifier. Yeah, which, which is which is kind of interesting if you think about it, because if you look at a lot of the people who had their credentials pulled, their accounts shut down on Twitter recently. Uh, it's been some right wingers. I think that this might this news might kind of surprise some people, maybe other people not so much. Absolutely. And I think sometimes, you know, folks that are in the right far right wing camps, they are the ones that say, ah, yeah, their social media is against us. They're trying to curb us. They're trying to silence us when they, when people get their accreditation or access revoked. Um, so this kind of flies in the face of that, which is very, very interesting. Very interesting. And looking forward to having this conversation. Uh, why, why don't we go straight to Dr. Tamara Shepard, uh, an associate professor out of the University of Calgary, in the Department of Communication, Media and Film. If I'm like if I'm 18 years old, 19 years old again, 20, 24, it doesn't matter what age. But if I'm a young person again and I'm trying to pick and choose what faculty I want to join or what I want to do, this is the this is the, like the faculty description that's going to jump off the page and grab my attention. The Department of Communication, Media and Film. This is where you're going to have engaged storytellers there. And Dr. Tamara Shepard, of course, is 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 sort of overseeing the storytellers of the present and the future. Her research looks at the tech industry and how governments approach regulation of digital media. What a fascinating field. Dr. Shepard, welcome to the show and thanks for making time for us today. Thanks so much, Ryan. I'm happy to be here. Can I? Like, we'll get into Twitter and we'll get into the right wing algorithms and all that kind of stuff. I'd be fascinated to, to get some insight into how your career has gone. I mean, you know, you, you focus on the tech industry and regulation of digital media, constantly moving targets. And I mean, that, you know, when we talk about government legislation of this type of stuff, uh, kind of the general premise that I've noticed with commentators is that governments, as these big, huge ships, have a tough time nimbly navigating how quickly these industries can move and change. 
Certainly. And um, right now in Canada, well, just before the suspension of parliament for the election, um, there's a sort of series of bills that are going through parliament um, to try to deal with platform regulation, which is a really difficult problem for governments because, as you note, they work very slowly and through a deliberative process, whereas the tech industry, you know, their motto is move fast and break things. So it's all about, um, you know, build the systems first and then worry about the consequences later, which is very germane to the discussion of Twitter and what's happened on there lately. Yeah. How, how would you characterize the job that, I mean, we'll care most about our federal government right now. We could maybe take a look at others around the world, but how is the Canadian government done with regards to regulating these digital spaces and platforms? Well, um, there hasn't really been a big consistent framework for dealing with platforms yet, but that's what the current liberal administration has been working on for a couple of years. And they will be introducing a suite of legislation, it looks like over the next sort of 12 months um, to see you know, how they can deal with different aspects of platform regulation. One that's working its way through the system right now is uh, about online harms. So how to deal with things like um, harassment, violence, hate speech, and so forth online, um, which again is a, a problem that, well, it needs to be dealt with pretty much everywhere in the world. And, and some places are dealing with this in different ways than others, of course. Um, but the other aspect, too, uh, that was sort of suspended just before the election, as I mentioned, was proposal for Bill C-10, which would regulate platforms in the interest of um, supporting more local journalism. So this is also the question of, you know, now that many of us get our news through these American-owned, globally um, circulating platforms, what does that mean for the production of local news and local journalism? And, and you know, how do these sources survive in this kind of environment? So there's regulation about that coming through the pipe. Um, there will be changes to the Copyright Act, presumably coming up. So there's a lot of things, a lot of different pieces moving. And um, it is important to, to kind of get it right. So this is a tricky area for, for governments to to manage. I, I kind of get the sense that you and I could probably talk for about six hours on this stuff. I mean, you don't want to talk about the future of journalism and the future of local journalism. Uh, it's obviously an area of great interest and great concern for us and for our team here. And I think it's fair to say for this audience as well. Uh, back at you know mid to late October, Twitter releases by way of a blog post um, some pretty interesting information examining algorithmic amplification of political content on Twitter. How surprised were you that Twitter as an entity was doing the research and ultimately released what it found? Hmm. Okay, so on your first point about Twitter doing the research, I think Twitter has been trying to position itself against a company like Facebook or Meta or whatever it's going to be called um, and trying to be framing itself as being responsive to its users and thinking about its responsibilities in a democracy. So I think to me, it's not so surprising that Twitter has been doing this kind of um, research and has actually released it. Now, of course, Facebook and, and other companies, Google, whatever, have their own internal research arms and they do kind, kinds of research like this, but they're much less transparent. And really right from the beginning, Twitter has offered its API up for researchers to be scraping tweets and doing their own work and so forth. So um, not terribly surprised that this study was done. Um, so, I mean, that's one of the good things, I guess, about Twitter uh, compared to some of the other big um, social media platforms. Um, and then the results of it are also not terribly surprising just mm -hmm. from the point of view of like a Twitter user. Um, you know, you can certainly see how, uh, well, the ways that the platforms are designed to 
not interfere too much with certain kinds of speech means that they can be gamed by users in different ways. And so I think there's kind of something like that going on here. Um, I mean, the research that you mentioned, this study, all it points out is that there is uh, an algorithmic amplification effect. So that just means that Twitter's algorithm, when it orders your tweets, so if you're looking at the tweets in the algorithmic order as opposed to reverse chronological order, that order tends to favor right-wing um, politicians' content, but also sources from right-wing journalistic outlets. And so there is a, a measurable effect that the researchers found um, in most countries, not Germany, they didn't, they didn't find this in Germany, but um, in the other countries they looked at, including Canada and the US, they found this effect of algorithmic amplification for right-wing sources, but they don't know why that's happening. And so we can only speculate as to why exactly that's happening and draw on other kinds of research to suggest why that might be so. Can I ask you to speculate why it's happening? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, as I noted, this particular study is doing a kind of experimental, large scale experimental study where they compared people who were using the reverse chronological timeline versus users who see the algorithmically ordered timeline. But there's other research on um, kind of more longstanding historical uh, media strategies of right-wing groups, um, for example, other kinds of right-wing populist uh, messaging and so forth, that might suggest why this is happening on Twitter. So um, there are a lot of strategies that right-wing politicians and right-wing news outlets use on social media to promote their content uh, through this algorithmic amplification to, to get more views and likes. In a way, it's a kind of gaming of the algorithm. So you can think about Twitter's algorithm as privileging things that get clicked on or that get shared more and so forth. So they're trying to create content, you know, clickbait as we, we understand it, um, trying to get create content that gets clicked on more. So there's, there's that kind of element. Um, a lot of right-wing parties use a, a, a sort of strategy called hashjacking. So you can take an unrelated hashtag, like let's say something really popular about COVID or something like that. Um, in Germany, this has been used by the far right AFD party, actually, to, they've hashjacked the flatten the curve hashtag, which has nothing to do with right wing politics. It's, you know, this sort of public health um, initiative. So they've taken that hashtag and then related it to their own messaging. So you can take a popular hashtag and sort of piggyback the right wing messaging off of that. So there's that. Um, there's also more longstanding populist rhetorical tropes um, that get a lot of traction, not only on Twitter or social media, but elsewhere. Um, so tropes like, uh, you know, claiming to have the voice of the people by othering certain groups, uh, creating a kind of in-group, um, appealing to the idea of a heartland or, you know, a, a um, uh, sort of nationalistic strategies, um, having charismatic leaders and so forth. So these sort of more longstanding political communication strategies on the part of right-wing groups are used successfully online as well as offline or in other um, news outlets and so forth. And then on Twitter, there's the issue of political bots. So there's a lot of bots on Twitter. So estimates range from around 10 to 15% of Twitter accounts are run by bots. So they're automated rather than being a legitimate user behind there. And many of these bots are associated with uh, right-wing parties or news outlets or um, companies promoting certain things. Um, and there's a sort of fake grassroots element to the way that these bots proliferate content. So um, there's a sort of strategy like that where 
you can even automate filling up someone's Twitter feed with certain kinds of messaging. Yeah, I, I think I've experienced it uh, from time to time. <laughs> can I can I ask, like, we, we talk a lot about bots and I'll see, you know, we, we, people say, you know, uh, maybe I'll get a few haters on a tweet that I'll post and then and other people on Twitter will respond and say, like, bot, like blocked and reported bot. But I don't think anybody actually, not any, I shouldn't say that. I think the majority of people don't totally understand what it is and how it works. Like, does a, does a does a company or an entity or a political office like in other, in other words a politician's team is there like a service where you go our budget's a hundred dollars or twenty dollars or a thousand dollars and you want as many bots as possible to hit this certain account or to engage on these keywords or to push out a certain type of can you explain to us kind of how it works and what to keep yeah. an eye out for maybe how to identify bots i mean i'd love the 101 version of this <laughs> yeah. Um, well, there's a range of different kinds of bots and some of them are totally benign or even helpful. So um, it's really just a, a system of automated tweeting. So you can even think of like a scheduler as a kind of bot. So if you've set up a bunch of tweets to go out at a certain time, you can use, uh, I mean, anyone can use a scheduler bot like that. Um, but there are also ones that collect data from certain sources. Like, I mean, to, to use COVID as an example, there are bots that collect um, COVID data that gets released by governments every day. And then you know, put them out on Twitter just automatically. So there are bots like that that are, are quite benign and helpful. Um, but there's also like, as you say, a more strategic use of bots um, where you can sort of hire like a public relations type of firm um, to produce uh, content and then have a, a bot that's automatedly, automatically um, putting out that content. So um, yes, you can certainly have sort of collection of keywords and and that get like spewed together there are some bots like that or there are some where the content is much more carefully created there's a kind of a range but it's really just about um, automating the posting so that tweets can be posted at a high volume and that kind of volume helps them show up more frequently in the algorithmically ordered timeline one of the things i was fascinated like the minute that sarah had reached out to you to come on the show the first thing I was interested to see is, do, is Dr. Shepard on Twitter? And you are, in fact, at T. Shepsky. Um, do you have moments where you're like, I got to just leave. I got to shut this down. Uh, let me ask oh, yeah. you. Let me let me ask the question in a more pointed way. Why are you still on Twitter? Yeah, I think that almost every day. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. I mean, <laughs> I hardly ever post anymore. So, you know, there's that. I've become a lurker over time. Yeah. Um, I mean, initially, like a lot of us who study social media or, or tech, join these sites when they start up out of curiosity and to know what's going on. And, um, you know, I, I did this with TikTok and immediately got off of there. So, um, why, let, yes. me, let me interrupt. Why did you bolt from TikTok? <laughs> Uh, well, I could see how it would be a huge time suck. Um, sure. And um, yeah, so, you know, um, yeah, but certainly Twitter is not a site that makes you feel great after doom scrolling late at night or whatever. Um, but certainly for my job, at least, um, it's important to be on there. A lot of academics are on there. A lot of journalists are on there. So I'm sure it's important um, from your perspective and your job as well. Uh Actually, journalists make up the highest pr proportion of verified users. Mm, interesting fact. That's interesting. Yeah. And so a lot of journalists and academics are on there. So it's it's very helpful to find out about 
new research that's coming out or, or you know, or what's going on. But um, sure, at the same time, it can be a little depressing, I think. I don't know, yeah. something about the tone of Twitter I find depressing. Well, it's I totally agree with you. And but I've also seen amazing things happen on Twitter. Yes. You know, I mean, I can I can think of there, there have been, um, you know, there's natural disasters. Uh, you know, I remember even, you know, the Fort McMurray wildfire and the way that Twitter was being used to help connect people. You know, people were looking to have their horses boarded or people were looking for places that they could park their their RV that had like all of their belongings. They fled the city or whatever. And people were using it. And I was like, this is a place that works. Um, there have been building collapses. I, I think of like warehouse collapses, horrific stories where people have literally been using Twitter to try to provide information about their whereabouts. I mean, the, the citizen journalism that it's allowed for has been amazing. But along with that has come so many trade-offs, like, you know, unverified information and, and uh, you know, the proliferation of a lot of the things that, that I think, you know, people in positions like yours and mine have sought to combat. I mean, to, to remind people about the importance of verifying the sources of, and all of the conversations that go along with it. I don't think that the medium is necessarily evil or certainly polluted or needs to be shut down. But I do think that there are things that need to be addressed, which is why conversations like this are so important. Um, Professor, what would you say I mean, to, to the average person that's going to listen to this and say, OK, uh, Twitter, right wing algorithm, fine. But, you know, they look at all these big. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for the average person? Yeah, I think a really um, eye opening thing that the average Twitter user can do is toggle between the reverse chronological timeline and the algorithmically ordered timeline and see what's being fed to you through the algorithm. Um, so on the mobile app, you can do this. There's a, a little star on the top right corner and you can press that and you can change back to the reverse chronological timeline because the algorithmic timeline, which is called the home timeline is the default. So if you want to see how you are being sort of profiled and targeted by Twitter um, or what sorts of things you're seeing more often than not, um, that's a, an interesting thing for an average user to do and see which version of the timeline you prefer. Can we do this live? Can we do it? I'm not on the obviously on the mobile app, but I can share my screen right now. So I've got okay. my Twitter loaded up here. Um, so here I'm on my profile. So I want to go to my my feed. Right. So I go to home mm -hmm. and then I'm going to click. So I see this big star at the top. This is what we're talking about. Yes. So home shows me the top tweets first and you want me to switch to the latest tweets. That's right. Tweets as they happen. OK, interesting. I got a real talker there. Shout out to Terry Grills, whose tweet shows up first. Alberta government next. OK. OK, interesting. And, and what is this doing? This is this is making the algorithm less influential in what I'm seeing. Yeah. So it's going to be ordered by the most recent tweets from the accounts that you follow. Okay. Of course, there's still promoted tweets in there. So that Alberta government one was a, yeah, an ad, but right. um, you're still going to, you can't get rid of ads that easily. Um, but you can see um, these, these tweets as they happen. The thing with the algorithmic timeline, the home timeline, is they show you things that they think you're going to like, but it's not only from accounts you follow. They will also, also show you things from other adjacent accounts. And so that's part of the, the amplification issue that's going on is that even if you deliberately choose not to follow certain kinds of accounts, they can still pop up in your home timeline because the, the algorithm thinks that's what you're going to like. So um, that's what's nice about the, the reverse chronological timeline is you don't have the interference of the algorithm in that same way.
Is there anything else, I mean, with regards to that study that really jumped out at you? I mean, I, I know that there's, you know, with, with stuff like this, people's eyes can kind of glaze over, me included. I mean, even the headline, examining algorithmic amplification of political, it's kind of like, but it's actually a big deal. And it, and it actually has a huge influence on public discourse and people's understanding of the truth. Uh, is there any point that we've missed here that really jumped out at you that you think is, is worth pointing out? Yeah, I mean, academic studies are not really usually very clickbaity themselves. Um, what I think is really interesting about that study is the methodology that they used because they were able to do an experimental treatment um, because some of the researchers are internal to Twitter. Twitter, when they rolled out that home timeline, so they initially, all tweets were in that reverse chronological order at the beginning. Um, they rolled out that home timeline um, only recently in 2016. So at the time that they rolled that out, they excluded 1% of their users, sort of uh, distributed over the globe. And so that exclusion of that 1% of users who never got to see the algorithmic timeline is part of the experiment. So they are the sort of control group in this experiment. And I think that's really fascinating that just from the outset of Twitter introducing that feature, that they deliberately set up this experimental condition to be able to trace the effects of of the algorithmically ordered timeline over the course of all of those years since 2016. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Dr. Tamara Shepard of the University of Calgary, the Department of Communication, Media and Film, an expert in the tech industry and government regulation of digital media. Thanks for making time for us today. We wanted to go to somebody that could really make this understandable, make this accessible. And you've delivered. Great. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You got it. Uh, again, you can follow The Good Doctor on Twitter. Uh, check out our account, Real Talk RJ, which continues to add followers every day, which is awesome to see Real Talkers following that account, which is, is run by uh, Sarah Hoyles. And, and of course, every morning she includes when there is a Twitter handle, the handle from a guest. I saw an account here, uh, Crazy Fast Eddie, who chimes in on the chat. He says, if it wasn't for Twitter, Real talk wouldn't exist. Mm. He says Jesper would have disappeared and we may have thought he was still on Ched or if I wasn't on Ched, you would have wondered where I went um, on to something. I don't know if I would say real talk wouldn't exist, but crazy fast Eddie's bang on Twitter is huge for what we do. Huge. Yeah. Finding guests, um, keeping kind of the I, our, our fingers on the pulse of what's yeah. happening, what people are talking about. I mean, yes, there are. You can kind of get into uh, echo chambers yeah uh, but i love this i did not know about hitting that star up top that's really and interesting yeah i'm, I'm gonna like, do I, it i'm gonna yeah i'm gonna stick over there where it's like i don't want the algorithm in my business yeah if I, if I can help it is that something that's been on your radar sam the whole the whole algorithmic view versus yeah. the latest or the top tweets versus I, latest yeah tweets? i will I, like i will <laughs> fully admit that i i like the moment they rolled out what? that feature i switched it back to is that right timeline oh, yeah you, you, why absolutely did, sam why didn't you tell us what I the hell man what the hell man I, like legitimately, I thought that this was this was common knowledge. Yeah, now like, you're calling us dumb. <laughs> calling you dumb. Hey, you two. We seek to understand. Hey, you, hey, you two. Take this fight to Twitter where it belongs. <laughs> I love the account, um, the doom scrolling reminder bot. It's my favorite. Okay. Um, it's just at doomscroll underscore bot. And it is awesome because it shows up in my feed and it's like, hi, are you doom scrolling? Yes. I know you're trying your best. Give your eyes and mind a break. You still deserve time to rest and recover. Yeah. And it like snaps me out of it while I'm 
while I'm doom scrolling, it'll show up, and I'm like, this Alberta, "All right." This Alberta government, could, I'm just hanging on a second. Let me <laughs> let me just let me just mute this one here because I'm just I'm sick of seeing that ad pop up. Advertising works, everybody. But okay, so this that's a great suggestion. I didn't mean to totally just barrel into your sentence nah, and interrupt good. you, but I was just getting super annoyed that that kept showing up in my feed. See, that, this I didn't know experience. about. Okay. So we share. Look at us. Do you sharing. are you a, are you a doom scroller? Hoyles? Oh hell yeah! Me too. Yeah, Late I at just, night, especially. It's like, why do we do this to ourselves? I'm like Carrie, like roll over, and she's like, she's like sort of half asleep, and she's like, put your phone away, put your because I'm just sitting there like, there's a building collapsed, and you know, and I'm not. I don't mean to make light of that, but yeah, there's always something that's going to trouble you. Uh, yeah, but again, at the same time, Twitter's fantastic and phenomenal, and it, it has allowed us to have. To amplify our reach, uh, we're not technically on Twitter as a platform with regards to the operation of the show, but it's huge with regards to how we share our information, how we communicate with people. I mean, I can think of some fundraising things that we've done on Twitter. I've personally been part of fundraisers that have raised hundreds of thousands of dollars, literally because of the reach of Twitter and how it can connect people. So, you know, the, there's the whole idea of you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but at the same time when the bathwater keeps getting more and more and more and more and more dirty, you got to get the baby out of it for a second. Protect the baby. Protect the baby. Change the bathwater. What? Our friends at McBain Camera want to remind you that the holiday sales are on right now. The Nikon holiday sales at McBain. You can check it out online at McBainCamera.com. This Nikon Z50 camera everybody's talking about. 4K Ultra HD with 1080p slow motion, time-lapse mode, so much more, including this LCD screen. You can see it right It flips down to activate self-portrait mode. Perfect for selfies. And they've extended at McBain their 30-day price protection guaranteed to December 24th. Can I say right now with the supply chain interruptions and everything, people right now, if you're looking to have that gift under the tree for that special someone, you don't want to, we know that Santa's going to be able to deliver regardless of supply chain issues, but every once in a while, the human reality is that the early bird is rewarded. I mean, conversely, the late worm, it's been pointed out, never gets eaten. The late worm never gets eaten. But the early bird is oftentimes the one, right? Just think about that for a second. The late worm never gets eaten. But the early bird in this circumstance may be concerned if I'm going to buy that Nikon Z50 camera for the photographer in my life to make their year. What happens if like on Black Friday or like the week before the holidays, all of a sudden there's some big sale and I paid way more? McBain has extended their 30-day price protection guarantee to December 24th, right till Christmas Eve, so you can shop early with confidence. Six convenient Alberta locations, or you can live chat with a team member. It's a great feature online right this minute at McBainCamera.com. McBain, create to inspire. Our friends at Eden Landscaping, the work never stops. In bringing outdoor spaces to life, even when the snow falls, they can still do outdoor work, including some of these covered structures, these beautiful pieces that people are integrating into their landscape design. You want to be able to barbecue, run your smoker outside. I was out for a walk with my parents over the weekend, just along the Bow River down in Calgary. What a beautiful walk that was. And there's a fella overseeing his smoker. We stopped for a second and just like took it all in. I, I, I was sort of like passively hoping for an invite over. Hey, pal, can I cut you off some burnt ends? But it didn't happen regardless. 
you know, that sort of thing is a social element. Nothing better. The snow is lightly falling. You've got that smoker going. You're outside having a glass of wine with your friends under your beautiful, beautiful pergola, your gazebo constructed by the team, Mike and his team at Eden Landscaping. You can find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca. And we wanted to remind you that if, if you're looking to turn over a new leaf, better yourself, make yourself maybe more appealing in a competitive job market, refresh your skills, or just broaden your understanding about a certain subject, Athabasca University is Canada's online university. It's a world-class accredited institution, online programs and courses that are designed to be flexible. You learn at your own pace, the schedule that suits your lifestyle. You know how it is. Some weeks you've got 40 hours you can pour into something. Other weeks you've got zero. Athabasca U is a perfect fit for real life. You can learn more about the programs that they offer, the courses, about how AU actually works. I mean, it's not an accident. We say it's Canada's online university. They've got thousands of students literally from coast to coast to coast that are taking advantage of the new era, the new age of Athabasca University. This is how people are learning online. I notice here uh, an announcement as, as we're live on the air. The federal government is committing Canadian forces uh, in support, uh, air support in particular, uh, to the people of British Columbia, in particular southwestern British Columbia, due to this flooding. And this is a story that we'll continue to cover. Uh, before we sign off for the day, I wanted to read an email. It's it's a bit of a longer one. This is from Rebecca. I took pause yesterday when this arrived. It, it arrived. Um, it caught me at a moment where I had a, a few. And and I was able to sort of take five minutes and to read through this and, and to really reflect on. I mean, this is Rebecca pouring her heart out and it was amazing. And I wanted to share this. Um, the subject line just simply said November 8th. Talk about dignity. She said this is the first time that I'm writing into real talk, although your show is a part of almost every day in our household. Rebecca, that means the world to us. She says, so it's Monday night. She sent this about one in the morning. She says, I'm awake later than usual tonight, listening to a replay of your November 8th show. She says, so you have this meaningful and real conversation with Amy Langer about dignity for those who are stigmatized for addiction. And this impromptu chat, Ryan, that you had with Sarah following, she says, I find my face soaked in tears. She says, I, I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve, so it's maybe not uncommon for me. But when I feel seen and when I feel heard, my heart, well, it breaks me wide open. This conversation is so deeply refreshing that she's talking about the November 8th show. If you missed it, have a listen. Uh, she says, I still struggle to find my footing with those who see the world through less than compassionate eyes. She says, as a matter of fact, earlier tonight, she wrote this on Monday into Tuesday. She says, I was hosting a naloxone training session at my community league with the team from Boyle Street Community Services. And we had a pretty good turnout for folks wanting to learn how to administer naloxone, how to essentially reverse an overdose and how to help potentially save a life, even and in most circumstances, probably the life of a stranger. Tonight, says uh, Rebecca, I learned that two people a day die in Edmonton alone of opioid overdose. And it's more than heartbreaking. Rebecca says, I lost my mom uh, to a suicidal overdose in 2003. 
I didn't know this. Rebecca says, Ryan, you actually donated to the first 5K run that I've ever done in honor of my mom and to raise awareness for suicide prevention. That was back in September. She says, I reached my goal, by the way, of $5,000 for the Center for Suicide Prevention. And I was so grateful for those donations. It was the month of my 40th birthday, almost 20 years after my mom passed. My mom's name was Linda. She was a beautiful human being who would have done anything for me, her only child. She was an educated, competent accountant who traveled the world. She loved art and fancy things and watching scary movies with me, her daughter. She was almost houseless on more than one occasion. She experienced intergenerational traumas that she kept buried and she used substances to medicate and over the years became worn by the lack of compassion and love that she felt or didn't in the world. And when I lost her, my whole world changed. I had family members remark, I hope she's in a better place, or I was surprised so many people came to her funeral. I don't believe any of these people meant any malice. In fact, I think they felt like they were practicing their idea of compassion, however twisted it may have come out. It was just another example of the stigma associated with those who struggle with addiction and mental illness. Rebecca says everybody deserves dignity. We all come from different places of privilege and trauma. A celebrity who dies by overdose. This is if, if you remember the context here, this is the I was I was talking about Broadway. Jimmy Hayes, the former NHL player's brother, Kevin, plays for the Flyers and, and he died. It was learned later that he died by overdose suddenly at home. Young dad, you know, father and his brother in an interview with the Boston Globe said, I just want people to know that my brother wasn't just some junkie. And with full respect to the family that comment really rubbed me the wrong way because everybody that dies by overdose or everybody that experiences that loss in their life or the trauma associated with addiction, et cetera, they've all got a story. They've all, they're all somebody's son or daughter. They're all somebody that deserves love and compassion and respect. I can understand what Kevin Hayes is saying about his brother. Like, I hope that his legacy, you know, we oftentimes say to people that die tragically or in these circumstances, I hope people remember them for how they lived, not how they died. And that's kind of what he's saying. Let's I hope I hope his legacy is not just the guy that died by overdose. I hope people remember who he was, husband, father, teammate, son, etc. I get the point. But the comment, I hope people realize he wasn't just another junkie or he wasn't just a junkie. It's like, well, what is that supposed to mean? What about all the other people? That was the premise of our conversation in my comments on November 8th. That's what Rebecca's referencing here. She says a celebrity who dies by overdose or suicide is no different than somebody who's experienced a lifetime of, of, of houselessness or a deep family trauma. And I am no different than the woman on the street asking for help or for a cup of coffee or for a smile. You're no different than the man who uses opioids to get through another night of having to sleep on the streets. We're all just humans trying to find our way through this lifetime on this crazy planet. Rebecca says in Buddhism, there's a teaching that all humans just want two things to be free from suffering and to be loved. We're all the same. Most of us are trying to tend to our suffering in one way or another. Our addictions comfort us. They give us love. We all have them in different forms. If we have the support and capacity, we can learn to have healthier relationships with our addictions, with our attachments. Uh, but for many, surviving this lifetime this week, this day is the most important goal. And I wish for the day when we can all see each other's suffering as our collective suffering. I love that, Rebecca. 
She says we can see ourselves in each other and we can see the need to be loved and that it exists in everyone. We are all seeking the same things. We are all the same. Thank you to the show for the honest and real conversations. They're a part of this shift. And you all continue to show up in sincere and meaningful ways. And I look forward to continuing to be challenged in how I show up in the world by listening to this show and the engaging people that you give space to. Keep talking the real talk. That from Rebecca. How the hell am I supposed to pick one email of the month? We have created a monster with this. That's going into the hopper, too. That's that's the type of email. When I read it, I read it. I, I'll be honest with you. I don't. It's impossible to read every email all the way through. But every once in a while, one just grabs you. And that one grabbed me. Her talking about her mom and talking about the, the people in life just want two things. And we are all the same. And I just thought it was beautiful. And Rebecca, I hope you hear this. Thank you so much. It means the world to us. Thanks to everybody that shows up. The show wouldn't be a thing. I mean, you know, Eddie earlier that says Real Talk wouldn't be a thing without Twitter. Real Talk wouldn't be a thing without the audience. <laughs> if you want the most obvious statement I can make all day. And it's not lost on us that you continue to show up each and every day. So do our partners, like the team at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. I told you over the weekend that my wife, Carrie, and I wanted to check out this Grand Cherokee L. I keep talking to you about this is the third row seating for the first time ever, the Grand Cherokee L. It's it's bigger, but it comes to that same Grand Cherokee reliability and the reputation. And after I showed you this photo yesterday, this is my beautiful bride outside beautiful Sherwood Dodge. Somebody close to me the editorial producer of this show sarah hoyles we get off the air she takes off her headphones and she says you didn't say you were mad at me as a matter of fact you said something worse you said something that every child hates to hear from their parents you told me you were disappointed in me and why were you disappointed in me because you were built doing this huge big build-up about over this look at this beautiful and i was expecting you to be like Look at this beautiful human right yes. here. This beautiful human yes. by the name of Carrie Skelton. Yes, but instead I talked about the beautiful Grand Cherokee. Yeah. So I wanted to make it right today and, and talk about, you know, the stunning curves of the... Now, people are going to, is he about to talk about the Grand Cherokee or his bride? I don't know. Maybe I'll just leave it ambiguous. When the rubber hits the road, the performance is unbelievable but unlike carrie my beautiful wife who i reserve for just me you can drive the grand cherokee l by visiting say is this what you had in mind by visiting st albert and sherwood dodge is that what, kind of what we're getting at here i take it back i take it back i if regret you wanna, okay. everything okay carrie is the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life driving your grand cherokee though is on the list of the top 20. How's that? Is that a better job? We'll keep workshopping it. I hope she doesn't hear this, actually. Uh, Babe, I love you. More than the Grand Cherokee L, but I do love the Grand Cherokee L. And today, at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge, I hope that Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge hears this. This is a good one. This is a really good one. You can find them today, the best selection in the province of Alberta when it comes to Jeeps through the lineup because they can share their inventories. Plus, they've addressed... Thankfully, they've been they've been they've been obviously delivering amazing customer service over the past year and a half. But the fact of the matter is they haven't been able to get their hands on as many vehicles as they wanted. That time is coming to a close. It means that if you visit them now online, including through the sponsor staff at RyanJesperson.com, you can shop for Jeep, the trusted brand, trusted most 
since 1941. Whoo! I wanted to make that right, Hoyles. I knew that I was going to catch flack, so I wanted to make sure that I did it right. I do have to mention, and this is, of course, because we have Trash Talk coming up on Friday, 48 hours from now, almost exactly. We're going to be blowing a gasket, blowing off steam. I've already got a few locked and loaded. Every once in a while, we'll get a Trash Talk. Like Someone's inspired by Trash Talk on a Friday, and so Friday at noon, we'll get one for the next week. So we've already got a couple that are just simmering. They're like it's sort of like a, it's not a rolling boil, but they're just sort of like percolating right now, ready to rock. But there's still room for more. You want to get something off your chest, email it to us right now to talk at ryanjesperson.com. It's, it's one of the coolest promotions we have here. The idea of the team at Local Waste. They're the ones that came up with the idea of Trash Talk. They've been keeping it local for a quarter century. Still locally and family owned construction, commercial, residential waste and recycling collection. If you're a real talker and you own a restaurant, if, if you own a, some sort of a, a studio or your business relies on weekly trash and recycling pickup, I invite you to get in touch today with the team at Local Waste. They're going to make it a better deal than what you're currently paying. And I can say it with confidence because I've seen how they operate. They want to compete for your business. They want to find a great fit. Mikel, Lauren, Chris, and the whole team at Local Waste ready to take your call right now at localwaste.ca. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to get into the science bitumen beyond combustion. What's that all about? Plus, can we take camera uh, two, Sam? Three, the Hoyles cam? Can we take the Hoyles cam? Check out this book, National Geographic Ocean, A Global Odyssey, the legendary Dr. Sylvia Earle, a.k.a. Her Deepness, will join us. Plus, eat your words, all coming up. We'll see you then. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing Director, Josh Dunford. Account Coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise Operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's Editorial Board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.